This morning we're launching into a new series. Allie talked about it a little bit already. Um, it's a life, a lessons from the life of David. And I want to start with a, a short and yet profound scripture verse that I think is really kind of at the very center of this entire series. This is a verse from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And this, this verse, I think, gets right at the heart of why we are doing this series together. Here's what Proverbs says. Above all else, which is pretty high up there, right? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of of life. And this fits with what we find in the Bible. And what the Bible says is that there is this life that God wants you to have an experience that he actually created you for. A life of joy and hope and peace and perseverance. A life marked by patience and purpose and boldness and faith and humility and confidence and goodness and grace and truth. And this life, the Bible says, isn't some external thing that we chase after or attain somehow. This life is found and begins in the heart. It's a life that, that kind of it, it is offered by God. It's a life that comes out of a heart and a, and a soul that are transformed by the love and power and grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, deep down in our souls. Jesus talks about this very thing. He talks about it all the time. One of my favorite verses is from Luke chapter 6. This is what Jesus says. He says, The good man or the good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And the evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, everything in our life finds its roots, finds its source deep in our hearts. The Hebrew word for heart is the word lab. It's the Old Testament word. We're going to find this word in our passage today. And it literally means this. The innermost part of a person. The real stuff. The real self. The core of who you are. That's the heart. And so today we are launching into this series called Heart Matters. Where we'll get into matters of the heart by looking at lessons from the life of David. And I want to be really clear at the very outside of this series that this is not a series about how do we work harder and try harder to have good hearts. This is a series about how we can allow God to do his transforming work deep in our lives and hearts and souls so that we can live the life that he's called us to live by his power and strength. And to do that, we're going to take a look at a guy in the scriptures by the name of David. David was called a man after God's own heart. David is the kind of person who lives this life, who embraced this life that God longs us to have. And so if you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We just finished a number of weeks in the book of Ruth. And so for your convenience, I chose 1 Samuel next because 1 Samuel is right after the book of Ruth. So I'm sure your Bible is just naturally open to Ruth. And now you just go one book to the right. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is the chapter where we meet David in the scriptures for the very first time. And as you turn there, let me tell you a few things about this man. First and foremost, he is probably the central character in the Old Testament. Actually, in the first service, I had to correct that. He is the central human character 
in the Old Testament. God is the central character. But of the humans in the story, David is pivotal. Uh, we see this just by sheer volume. If you look at the scriptures, Abraham, who's pretty important, right? The father of the nation of Israel, the father of the Hebrew people. Abraham gets 14 chapters devoted to his story. Elijah, the the wonderful and powerful prophet, he has 10 chapters devoted to him. David has about 66 chapters in scripture devoted to his life. He is mentioned 600 times or so in the Old Testament, another 60 times in the New, and so significant, so bright is his memory that he's actually the very last character named in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And friends, not just in the Bible. Um, We think about the grandeur and and the greatness of David. We don't just see that in the scriptures. The life of David is actually the longest narrative presentation of a single human life in all of ancient literature. Wrap your mind around that for a second. In all of ancient literature, there's biographies and about a lot of different individuals, and yet we have more on the life of David than any other figure in the ancient world, and that's centuries and centuries of human lives. David was a remarkable guy. One scholar uh, said if he had to name a single Renaissance man in human history, somebody with extraordinary capacities on multiple fronts, David would be at the top of the list. He was a musician, so skilled that he was summoned to play for the king and he would play his music for the king and his music would relieve King Saul of his depression. David's music was like musical Prozac. (laughs) He was an accomplished warrior. He led armies. He fought valiantly individually. He was a writer and a poet. Most of you know that he wrote a good chunk of the Psalms found in the scriptures. David was a statesman. He had such wonderful political insight and wisdom that during his rule, Israel achieved its highest level of economic well-being, and David's kingship is still to this day remembered as the golden age of Israel. Friends, the time of David has left such an impression on his people that they continue to refer to the Messiah as the son of David. The savior of all the world, of all the universe, of all of creation, the redeeming force of history is referred to as the son of David. And so now you're starting to get a sense at just how huge this man is. And yet, even with all of those external abilities and accomplishments, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we're told that what's really special about this man, what drew God to him wasn't any of those external things. It was his heart. It was the man that he was on the inside. And that's the reason we're really studying David. We're studying him to understand just a little bit more how my heart and yours can become for us a wellspring of life. Now, before we climb into our passage, let me just kind of catch you up. I'll give you a little sort of historical overview so you know what's happening as we enter the scene. Israel, the Jews, the Hebrew people, 
were slaves in Egypt. They are, are freed. They're delivered from Egypt. They roam around in the wilderness for about 40 years before they move into the promised land. Then they enter a period known as the period of the judges. The period of the judges was a, a time and a season in the nation of Israel where things were not good. It was a very dark season. And a number of different leaders rose up to lead the nation at various points. Some of them were good. Some of them not so good. And the very last, the final judge on the list is a guy by the name of Samuel, and he was a good judge. He was a man after God. But the people, they wanted a king. They said, God, the reason we're having so much trouble, the reason we keep going wayward and going off the path that you've laid out for us is that we, don't, we do not have a king. Please, God, give us a king. And God says, you don't need a king. I am your king. But the people insisted. And so finally God has Samuel, the final judge, anoint the very first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And Saul was an impressive man, physically and externally. He was very impressive. But after Saul was anointed king, the power got to him, and he became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil, such that in 1 Samuel chapter 13, this is what God says to Saul. He says, Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so now, in chapter 16, God sends Samuel to find this man, this man that God says is after his own heart. First Samuel chapter 16, here we go. Long intro, but now we're finally there. Here it is. I'm going to read this whole passage, the, whole, the first 13 verses, and so I invite you to just follow along in the scriptures or even just close your eyes and sort of walk through this scene with me. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me, kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. You see, Samuel actually had a reputation of bringing judgment to towns, and so when he shows up, they're a bit nervous. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, Whew, right, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate or purify or prepare yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. And I'm not really a huge fan of that part personally. You know, I've always sort of thought you should get extra points with God for height, but apparently not. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shammah pass by. 
But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This morning in our passage, I want to talk about a number of things that I believe we must remember, some lessons we must learn about guarding our hearts, the way that we're told to in Proverbs, some lessons we must learn if we want our hearts to become a wellspring of life for you and me. Here's our first lesson. Never let the past keep you from God's future. As our story begins, God is speaking to Samuel. And you have to know again that Samuel is one of the wisest, strongest, most decisive people in the Old Testament. And yet as this story launches, the word that probably describes him best is hesitant. He is hesitant. God tells him, Samuel, you go and anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God... We've already got a king, and generally it's not good for a person's health to appoint a new king when the old one is still on the throne. And God says, I don't care. Go. Trust me. And you notice that he's a little scared, isn't he? There's, a, there's some intimidation happening right now in Samuel's life. And that's because if you look at a map, Bethlehem, which is where Samuel's headed, was about 11 miles south of Ramah, his hometown, where he was from, where he's living. And to get to Bethlehem from Ramah, Samuel would have to travel right through Gibeah. And that is Saul's hometown. That's where the reigning king lives. And Samuel and Saul have already had a few run-ins. They're not on the best of terms. And of the two men... Who do you guess controls the armies and weapons and warfare materials of the nation? It's Saul. So Samuel has some fear going on. He's more than a little scared. But he's also got something else. He's mourning. God says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? And here's the backstory: Even with all the conflict between Saul and Samuel... Samuel anointed Saul. Saul was Samuel's guy. Saul was the plan as far as Samuel was concerned for how things were supposed to go for a new hope and preferred future. Samuel had put all of his trust and faith and hope in this man, Saul. And now things have not turned out the way that Samuel thought they should. And what's driving him at the beginning of this passage is disappointment and utter despair. He is full of mourning. He is full of sadness. He is full of disappointment. And he's also a little bit, a little bit afraid. And friends, I think this happens all the time in our relationship with God and in our lives. Not just to Samuel, but to you and me. Something happens. Something goes down and we get hurt. 
things go wrong, life doesn't turn out the way we think it should, and then all of a sudden there's this temptation to start living our lives on defense. In sports, they call it playing not to lose. It happened to the Rockets last night, if you caught that game. <laughs> it's when a team starts thinking more about not losing than winning. It's when their focus shifts from playing their best to not making mistakes. And friends, when fear and mourning are ruling your life, you go into protection mode and your main goal becomes just avoid pain, just avoid suffering, just avoid the disappointments that are surely out there and waiting for you. Maybe it was a marriage that didn't go the way you thought it should go. Maybe... You had such hopes, such dreams. You wanted it to go well. Maybe you weren't even the one who was unfaithful. And now you're mourning. You're mourning that failed relationship and, and your, your fear of getting hurt again is holding you back from something great that God wants to do in you and through you in the future. Maybe it was a career a dream that you never realized, a school you didn't get into, a job you didn't get. Maybe it was a family member who hurt you, who betrayed you, who hurt you deeply. Maybe you lost someone. Maybe it was a friendship that went south or a small group or a church. Maybe it was even a pastor. Friends, I am not saying that mourning is bad. I'm not saying that sadness and grief on the heels of hard stuff isn't okay. It's certainly okay. It's all throughout the scriptures. Even Jesus himself mourned. Mourning and sadness and grief are good and healthy things to do in response to tragedy. But God says this to Samuel, and I believe he says this to you and me. Give me your hurt. Give me your disappointment, give me your pain, and let me help you move forward. You see, here's the real truth. The reason we sometimes hold on to our pain and disappointment is because sometimes it feels safer to hold on to what we know, even when it's bad, than to reach for what we don't know, even when it might be good. The past is safe because you know what it looks like. You know what it feels like and you've already dealt with it. But God is always working in the present for the future. You must know this about God. You must know this about walking with God and experiencing God. You cannot experience God in the past. You can see what God did in the past. You can remember the past. You can learn some things about God. But if you want to experience God, there is one place and one place only that you can do that. That is the present. You can only experience God in the present for the future. And so God says to Samuel, I will show you what to do. You see, I know you're hurting, I know you're disappointed, I know you're mourning, I know you're scared, but there is a call now for Samuel to walk in faith, to learn to trust God again. Friends, as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, we must never let the past keep us from God's future. Get up and find out what God is anointing today. Find out what God is anointing for tomorrow. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. I'm going to be short and specific on this point because we're going to come back to it in this series. But what we find in these verses is that the first thing Samuel is instructed to do when he arrives in Bethlehem is to worship. That's what's happening with these sacrifices. He says, I want you to hold a worship service. And here's our second point. Never underestimate the power of worship to shape the human heart. Never underestimate the powerful force that is worship to shape the human heart. We must never take it for granted. Friends, I'm going to give you just sort of a a short, simple, working definition of worship. This is as bare bones and as basic as it gets. Here's what worship is. Worship is the declaration that God is God, period. Worship is the declaration that God is God, that he is Lord, that he is king, that he calls the shots in your life and you don't. God, you're God. I'm not God. My wife's not God. My husband's not God. My kids aren't. God, your God, and you call the shots in my life. And friends, when we live like that, when our lives reflect this truth that God is God, Romans 12 tells us that we are living lives of worship. That everything we do worships God. When he's on the throne of our lives, when he's calling the shots, your entire life can be worshiped. But there's this other truth in scripture that I think we sometimes water down and it's this, time and time again, there is this there's calling, there's tremendous power in setting aside specific times when you make the overt declaration that God is king in your life. There's power in set aside, setting aside specific times when we just make, this, we make the statement, God, you're king, I need to say it today, I need to remember it today, I need to declare it today, I even need to sing it today. You see, worship is so central to a life following God, a life following Jesus Christ, that it has to be, it must be something we do constantly and regularly, every single day. And here's a practice, by the way. Here's just something I'd offer you. Here's, here is a, a wonderful way to start every day. Get up in the morning, and as soon as your kind of, you know, brain fog clears, and you're ready to really think, and you're ready to like really be present, just make this declaration. God, today again in my life, you're God. You're calling the shots. You lead my life again today. God, do not let me take the wheel of my life today. You take the wheel because if I am driving, I will wreck this car. God, I need to declare again this morning, you are God. And if you, if you really want to make a declaration, put some music to it. Just make it a song, right? There's so much power in music. We talked about that weeks and weeks ago. You know, one of the blessings of my life is that a few days a week I get the opportunity to drive my kids to school. So my kids who are in elementary school, I, I take them in the morning. And, uh, and it's just this really su- sweet time. It's a chance to kind of be together. And it's a chance to sort of teach them about making this declaration. God, today we need you again. And you're still God for, for another 24 hours. Like we're, we're re-upping our, our ante on you being in control. And there's a number of things we do. We'll sing a number of different songs, but one of the songs we'll sing goes like this. Lord, prepare me. You know this one? 
to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. That's good. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living. This is when Skyler gets embarrassed. Sanctuary for you. You see, that's a declaration. That's God. I open my heart and my life up. You just come and you take up residence. You come in here into this heart, into this soul, and you rule and reign again today. You need that every single day, friends. That, that very simple declaration will change your life. I'd also argue that you need it weekly. You know, this gathering here, this is not church. This is the gathering of the church. This is when the church called Cedar Mill Bible Church, when the people called Cedar Mill Bible Church, this community gathers together to, to worship and learn and praise and encourage each other. And it is not the church. This moment is not the church. It's not even the most important part of church, but it is an important part of church. And I'll tell you what, one of the great gifts of my life is that I never have the option of skipping it. <laughs> even on mornings where I wake up and I say, honey, I don't want to go. She says, but you're the pastor. And they will notice. Um, and I tell you what, friends, the reason that's a gift is because left to my own devices, I'd probably, I'd probably skip sometimes. I'd just say, oh, I don't feel like it today. And yet, every single time I show up in this place together with this community, God always uses this time to remind me of a number of things. But one of the things he reminds me is, I'm God. And let's get some things ordered correctly in your heart, Dave. A few weeks ago, probably about a month and a half ago, it was a Sunday where I wasn't preaching. It was actually a rare Sunday where I was not only not preaching, I also wasn't giving announcements or hosting or anything. And so I got to just be here like a normal person. I drove to church in the car with my kids and they said, this is the weirdest thing ever that dad is driving to church with us. So I always come early. And so we drove all together and I'm sitting next to Amy. And if I can be really honest, we were fighting. We were not getting along. We had kind of had like a little thingy the day before and I was irritated at her and she was irritated at me and we just hadn't been getting along that good and there was this distance between us. You ever feel that? And in the car, we're driving there and we're driving to church in the car and there's this sort of gap between the passenger seat and the driver's seat people and the kids in the back can feel it and it's like, how's this gonna go? Dad's the pastor and they're fighting at church, right? So we're sitting there together back over there in the pew next to each other but miles apart and then we start to sing, we start to worship, and we start to make these declarations. God, you are God, you are king, you are good, you are gracious, you're, you know, all the things, right? And slowly but surely, I can start to feel God being God in my heart again. And there's this softness inside of me towards my wife that I hadn't felt for about 48 hours. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, she just reaches out and puts her hand on my knee. And I knew in that moment that God was doing in her heart the same thing he was doing in my heart. And that's just one of the reasons why it's significant and it matters and we should make the gathering of the church a priority because God does things in our minds and hearts and lives and souls when we gather together that he does not do always in other places. And so make church important and significant and a priority in your life and teach your kids to do the same. Never underestimate the power of worship to shape the human heart. That was longer than I wanted to go on that, but here's the next lesson from the story. And this is maybe the central message. Never let the outward overshadow the inward. Now you've got to picture the scene here for a moment. 
Jesse, this father, introduces his firstborn son, his eldest, his heir, to Samuel. Samuel comes to town to anoint a new king, and now Jesse has this chance. And he's always known that this kid was destined for greatness. He was senior class president, quarterback of the football team, voted most likely to succeed. He even led the worship team for the Bethel Synagogue youth group every Saturday. And this kid walks into the room and he's just striking. He's impressive. And Jesse says, this is my son, Eliab. Eliab is Hebrew for he's the man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I just made that up. But. but Jesse says, this is my eldest son, Eliab. He's the man. And the elders of Bethlehem all nod their heads. Yeah, he's the man. And Samuel even looks at him and says, yeah, he's the man. All right. And God looks at him and says, not the man. So in comes son number two, Abinadab, and he's not the man. And then son number three, and he's not the man. And Jesse goes through all seven sons. He parades his seven oldest sons in front of Samuel, and God says no to every single one of them. By the way, do you remember from the book of Ruth what seven sons represents? Seven sons in the Old Testament was sort of symbolic for like the perfect blessing, the ultimate blessing. It does not get any better than seven sons. And yet, what did we learn in the book of Ruth? It does sometimes get better than seven sons. In fact, seven sons sounds like, you know, really bad to me. I, I mean, I'm not excited about that at all. I, I've got two sons currently, and they're all I can handle. So, um, at any rate, uh, so the message here is it doesn't get any better than seven sons. And yet, yes, it does, because there's an eighth son. There's another son. And all the seven sons get paraded in front of Samuel, and God says no to all of them. And he's like, well, I'm pretty sure God didn't drag me down here to this little hick town to just embarrass Jesse and reject all his sons and go home. And so sort of like as a, a last-ditch effort, he turns to Jesse and says, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest, I guess. And you need to understand that the youngest in Hebrew combines two ideas. The idea of being young and also the idea of being inconsequential. And so the word that's used here means like young and unimportant, young and insignificant. This is like Jesse saying, well, I guess there's the run to the litter, but he's out with the sheep. Robert Alter, a famous Hebrew literary scholar, says this about the incident. He says, David is, is kind of a male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the ball with the other siblings. <laughs> and by the way, have you ever noticed how this whole idea of God choosing the youngest is a theme that runs all throughout the scriptures? Right? This is a culture where the oldest got all the priority and privilege and power. Like, oldest, most important, youngest, and not so much. And yet, over and over and over again in the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, God chooses the younger brother. It's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Joseph, not his older brothers. It's Moses, not Aaron. And here again, God chooses the youngest son, not the man, the kid who is off tending the sheep. You notice we still haven't heard his name. The dad doesn't even, you know, take time to even mention his name. He just says, well, you know, I guess there's, what's his name out there? Pee-wee with the sheep. I mean, now what is God saying here? Why, why does God do this over and over again? Is he saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled brats and he likes middle or younger kids better? Is that what he's saying? 
I hope not, because I'm a firstborn kid. And I know we've all got our issues, don't we, firstborn kids? It's our parents' fault. They learned on us. They cut their teeth on us. That's why, we have, that's why we're so messed up. Give us grace, you know? But God can still use us. And the message isn't that he doesn't like us. The message, I believe, is this. God doesn't see things the way we see things. He doesn't value what we and what our world and what our societies tend to value. He is not distracted or deceived by mere appearances, by societal standards and traditions and customs. God does things differently than we do. You see, friends, we live in a society, and just as a point of reference, so did they. Ours is perhaps a bit more overt, but we live in a society where what is constantly and consistently celebrated and affirmed are externals. You know what matters in 21st century America, specifically in the world of Cedar Mill, Oregon, the Portland suburbs, externals. That's what matters. That's what's valued. That's what's celebrated. How you look, what you have, your charm, your wit, your humor, your intelligence, your success, how talented or skilled or accomplished you are. But what this passage and the entire Bible really teaches us is that God looks past these things. He looks beyond them. He looks at something deeper, something that matters so much more. He looks at the heart. He looks at the core. He looks at our character. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Friends, we spend, we spend so much time on externals. I spend so much time on externals. Image control. Perception management, what people think of me. You see, sometimes in church what we do is we say, you know, the world gets all focused on, you know, materialistic externals, but not us. They're all focused on, you know, really nice cars and elaborate clothes and fancy jewelry, and they're, they're all focused on externals, but we're not focused on externals. Friends, I'll tell you what we do. We just shift, and we get focused not on materialistic externals. We get focused on religious externals and friends they're no better and so we show off our bible knowledge and we post pictures of our devotion times on instagram and talk about the tremendous sacrifice of all of our good works of course in the form of a prayer request God, pray for us. We're so busy these days doing all these amazing things for you if you just pray for the Tisharas because we're so busy doing God's stuff, you know, right? Can I just remind you what Jesus says? Jesus, he wasn't a big fan of religious externals. I don't know if you knew that or not. Here's what Jesus says. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words... Never let the outward overshadow the inward. In other words, 
Posting your devotion time or your service project or the really nice thing you did for your neighbor or friend or the homeless guy down the street on Instagram kind of doesn't sound like what Jesus would have us do here. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm serious. I'm like, this is like the prophetic moment of this sermon. I am so tired of Christians using social media to brag about their religiosity because I think it's so pharisaical that Jesus would be turning over tables if they had tables in the virtual world. Do not let the outward overshadow the inward. But, but don't you be just like the world but just change the playing field. Well, they brag about these external things. Well, we brag about these external things. And our external things are better than your external things. And Jesus says, I'm sick of external things. Let's get down to the heart of the matter. Do it in secret. Pray in secret. Serve in secret. Be religious in secret. People will see your, your good life. If you're living for Jesus, don't worry. People will notice. You don't have to broadcast it or figure out subtle ways to broadcast it so it doesn't look like you're broadcasting it, but you actually are trying really hard to do so. We're on to you, and you're on to me, so guilty as charged. Never let the outward overshadow the inward. Let me ask you this. What matters more to you? Your outward appearance, what people think of you, perception, or inward growth. How much energy are you putting into heart development, character development, soul development? How much time are you allotting for God to work on you in here? Can I make a suggestion? I don't pretend to be the best at this. In fact, many of you are better than me, but I'm preaching, so I'm going make to make a suggestion. That's all right. <laughs> last year, we put out a reading plan, and we challenged, remember we went through the Psalms last summer, if you were around last summer, we went through the Psalms, and we put out a reading plan, and said, let's read the Psalms through the summer. I, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things that's a challenge for me is, I'll be like walking with God, doing my thing, and then summer hits, and schedules go wonky, and all of a sudden, I find like days and weeks, and sometimes months go by without regular like spiritual practice in my life and so last summer was so great because we had this psalms reading plan so every day and every week we were in the psalms and just letting the word of god marinate and till up and do what the word of god does deep in our hearts and souls and so friends let me just offer you this maybe let's do it again i'm pretty sure the psalms never get old And I'm pretty sure that they'll go really nicely with the life of David, since he wrote a lot of them, right? So maybe if you're looking for a way to just invite God, not just into the externals of your life, but into the internals, grab that reading list. We posted it again. It's actually attached to the notes from this week's sermon. So if you go online and you click on the notes or you use the app and you click on the notes, you can get the reading plan. You can also just find it online. You can make one up yourself or read something else or another book of the Bible, whatever. But the Psalms are a great place to start. So let me just suggest that we take seriously the cultivation of the inward life, not just the outward life, even if it's a religious outward life. Never let the outward overshadow the inward. So Jesse sends for his youngest son. He sends for David, and Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, in that culture, if a very important person was coming for dinner, you would not sit down until they arrived. And so Samuel here is saying, you're telling me this kid's not the man, that he's kind of the runt of the litter, but he might just be the most important one of all. Verse 12. 
So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. This is a really important verse. This is the verse that screws up, sorry, messes up every single preacher's sermon out there because the sermon was really easy until now. Like, you know, God doesn't care about appearances. He doesn't care how you look. In fact, you should look bad. Let's all mess our hair up right now, right? But then all of a sudden, David, the chosen one, this man after God's own heart, he arrives on the scene and the very first thing they tell us is what? He's a nice looking dude. You see, it's really important for us today to stay balanced because sometimes, friends, Christians, even pastors, will talk as if things like gifts and strengths and accomplishments, talents, abilities are bad things. Like if you have too many of those, God can't use you. If you're just too talented, if you're too nice looking, if you're too accomplished, if you're too successful, then, then God must not like you. And that's just terrible theology. Because God is the one who gives those things, right? God is the one who hands those things to you and me to steward for his glory. And the problem with that sort of line of thinking is, well, man, he chooses David over the brothers, the run to the litter. And yet, what we'll discover as we read about David's life is he was actually a really talented guy, you know? God chooses him for his heart, but it doesn't mean that David doesn't have a lot of talents and abilities and skills, and he's also, you know, really nice to look at by the ladies. So that's how it is. Here's the point. To have gifts and talents and abilities is not bad. This message is not about how you should hide those or be ashamed of them in the church. It's another thing we do in church, right? We kind of downplay our gifts. Oh, you know, oh, I'm not that good at it. That's not humility, that's false humility, which comes out of pride. If you're good at something, just own it. Own it humbly and use it for God's glory. But this is not about saying, hey, we don't want talented people in here. And if you're good looking, you better leave right now. <laughs> I'm waiting to see who'll leave because that would be kind of arrogant. <laughs> That'd be hilarious though if someone just got up. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Take that, pastor. All right. Touche. All right. So he, that's Jesse, sent for him, David, and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Last point. Never let abilities and effort replace dependence on God's spirit. You know, one of the big mistakes we make when we read this passage and we talk about David is we think in terms of good and bad. Like, this passage must say the brothers were all bad. Their hearts were bad, dark, evil, corrupted brother hearts. And then David comes in and he is just this, like, picture of radiant purity. He's so good, he's so pure, he's so righteous, he's so true and unadulterated that God picked him. Now the problem with that way of looking at this story, at least for me, is that it leads me to think, well, that's great for David, but God would never pick me because I know my heart. I know what's in here. I know all the junk and corruption and stuff that I've got going inside of me. And so David got picked. David was favored, but I'm, I'm probably more like one of the brothers. I'm, I'm probably more like Saul, honestly. 
But that's not the message of this story, I don't think. And if you read the rest of David's life, which we'll do throughout this series, you'll discover that there was actually quite a bit of junk in David's heart as well. So what is it about David? Why does God choose him? Well, I think the clue is in the final verse of this story, sort of like the punchline, the whole like, like big fireworks show at the end. This is verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In the Hebrew, it says, the spirit of the Lord flooded David's life, like completely saturated him, like completely overwhelmed his entire life. The spirit was just poured out on him, completely overtakes him. And and the message here is that it is not that David is so intrinsically pure that God can use him, that he's so good that most of the time he can kind of sort of do things on his own, that he was just good enough to handle this job, and every now and then God would have to come in and give him a little nudge. No, the message here is that if David is going to be the kind of man, the kind of person, the kind of king God longs for him to be, he must be filled with and fully reliant on the Spirit of God in him. See, friends... Maybe here the message isn't that God is judging each one of us and checking to make sure that deep down our hearts are good enough. That if God were here today, he would look around the room and say, like, good heart, bad heart, dark heart, light heart, you know? And you'd just be sitting there going, oh, please let him not see my heart. Maybe God already knows that we're not pure, that we're not right, that we're not holy, that we're not untainted and that he's looking for a heart that's not perfect, but that he's looking for a heart that's open and willing to be led by his spirit. Maybe he's looking for a heart that knows I'm not the man and I need some help and I need your spirit to do his work in me. You see, the real power in David's life didn't actually come from David at all. Do you not see that? The power of David's life, the power of his rule and reign and kingship comes right from the very beginning from the Holy Spirit, from the spirit of the living God being poured out onto and in his life. You see, even though David was a pretty exceptional guy and there are a lot of great things about him, ultimately he was a a, a messed up, wretched, depraved sinner just like you, just like me. In fact, He had a tremendous capacity to blow it in some major ways. And yet God still used him. God used him in mighty ways. And I think that's probably the best thing about David for me. Because if God can use a guy with as many issues as David, maybe God can use me too. You see, David in this chapter is anointed king. And he was a good king. He was a good king. He ruled and reigned and led well, but he was not the ultimate king. You see, the nation of Israel, they were looking for a savior. They were looking for the ultimate leader, and they thought they had found it in David, but they hadn't. They hadn't found it in David. David was actually just a foreshadow, just a foretaste of the feast to come. Here's what the New Testament tells us. There was actually another child of Bethlehem, who was not allowed in, but kept out with the sheep and animals as well. There was another who was anointed by the Spirit of God. 
There was another who was not just forgotten by his father, but forsaken by his father on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, David, he was just an earthly king empowered by the spirit of God, but the real king, the true king, the ultimate king, he was coming. He would be a son of David, but he would be the one fully empowered by the spirit. He would be God himself come to earth to save and rescue and redeem and restore you and me. And the number one way that you and I can develop and cultivate a heart that is the wellspring of life is to put our faith and hope and trust fully in him. That ultimate king, that final savior, Jesus, the one called Christ. Jesus, the savior of the world. Jesus, God's son. Jesus, the one who gave up his kingship to hang on a cross. Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed so that my sin and your sin, so that my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness, so that my corrupt, evil, depraved heart and yours could be made right again before the living God. You see, the place that we must start if we want to even hope to have hearts that are the wellspring of life for you and me, we must start by declaring God is God Jesus is Lord, and I am fully and 100% reliant on him. There is nothing that I really bring to the table. I've got all my eggs in his basket. And that's why the most important part of our gathering every week is this moment where we come to the table together and we declare through this meal, the Lord's Supper, our dependence and reliance and faith and trust and hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus through his body, his body broken, through the bread, his blood shed, through the cup. And we declare that together in this room. And so this morning, I want to ask that you would just enter into this journey with me, that we would do it together, that we would take that step towards saying, God, do your best in my heart. I need you to do a work in me. And we're going to make that declaration today by coming forward to the table, taking the elements back. We can receive them on our own when you're ready. But we're going to declare together again today that Jesus is Lord, reorder the things in my heart and life again today, God. You are Lord. Your death and resurrection is my only hope. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then the tables will be open. Father, thank you so much for this man. He was just a man, but we get to learn from him. I love the way he pursued you and surrendered to you. and He... He trusted big and he failed big, but he always came back to this place of humility and knowing how much he needed you and giving you the glory and the credit and the honor. And so God, we know that he wasn't perfect. We're not here to worship him, we're here to worship you, but we will follow his lead and we stand on the shoulders of those before us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you how, I just thank you how real it is. Just that it's not this sugar-coated story, but it's just real life and real people whose real stories are becoming a part of your story. And so we pray that for us today as well. Just we come to the table, Lord, and we declare again that your son is the Lord and king of our lives, that you would continue to do what only you can do in our hearts. We love you, Father. We thank you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.